Um, well, this morning we have like two chapters of Scripture to read. And so I've been, you know, prayerfully meditating about this. And I've decided, since you're so well rested and you're not going to fall asleep, that I'm going to give you the morning off and I'm going to read the passage. <laughs> and we're not going to read it together. Part of the reason for that is this is a narrative and it's such a rich narrative, such a beautiful story. And, and I think, you know, we, we read passages of Scripture together because we want to illustrate that, hey, this isn't just for you. It's not just me speaking on behalf of God. This is God's Word speaking to all of us, and I need it too. Um, but with this story, I just think we would lose something in the monotone kind of like tone that we would read this together. So I want to read this this morning. We're um, picking up in our sermon series through Genesis. We're up to Genesis 7. We're going to read all of 7 and most of 8. This is God's word. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of the birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were all blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month, 
the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. He went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and look, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. This is God's word. That was mouthful. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would enliven this story into our hearts, that, Lord, we would see you clearly in this passage and that we would be encouraged and challenged by it, Lord. Work miraculously through our time with your word this morning. Uh, Lord, enrich our lives. Make us more like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I am excited to be preaching this passage. I have to admit when Jeff first assigned this passage to me, when I first got this passage, I was kind of like, wow, he's got these kind of like smaller chunks of this story at the beginning and the end, and I have two chapters. This feels a little bit like, hey, I want to cover these parts, and you cover everything in between. Um, and as I've looked at this passage, though, I, I've kind of gotten really excited about preaching it, and I was really excited about preaching it last week. I was telling some people, man, I can't wait to be preaching the whole story of Noah in one sermon. Um, seems like a lot, but I'm really excited about it. And um, somebody, and maybe it was you, Brian, I still don't, was it you? It was you. Okay. Brian, Brian comes up to me. I told him that. And he said, well, um, he said, are you going to do uh, one of those dramatic monologues? Is that why you've been growing out your beard? <laughs> And since you said that, Brian, you know, I've been thinking about this this past week. You know, my, uh, my pastor growing up on Easter and Christmas used to always do that, you know. Uh, he would pick a character, and then, you know, he'd read the passage, and then he'd, you know. He'd walk in there, and then he'd come back out with a costume, and he'd begin the monologue. I'm not doing that today. I'm not. It was tempting. You had the backpack. It could have been fun. Um, this would be a perfect passage to do that with, though. You know, the, the drama of this story is very compelling, and it's one of the reasons why it's in every children's Bible, and every child knows this story, because it's, it's a very fascinating story. Um, but I, I don't want to do the dramatic presentation this morning so much as I want you to see yourself, not me, in this story, and I want you to see Christ in this story and not me. Um, 
And so I have a very simple outline for us this morning. It's going to be a very traditional Presbyterian sermon, three points, uh, alliterative, as is right and proper. Um, no, no costumes and drama, sorry. The, the points are this, the remnant, the reckoning, and the reboot. Easy to remember. The remnant, the reckoning, and the reboot. Okay, so we're just going to go through that. Um, very simple. So first, the remnant. Um, before we talk about the remnant, we need to talk about the rest, <laughs> the rest of humanity, the rest of creation, right? Um, the situation, and, and we've been building to this as we move through Genesis, is that God has made this glorious creation, of course. Sin has entered in the world, and that's marred it. And there have been these kind of two kind of groups that as you follow um, the story of Genesis, kind of trace you know, kind of the, the lines of Cain and, and Seth, right? Like it's the, uh, one commentator calls it the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? The seed of the woman refers to the promise made to Eve, right? The promise of God's restoring blessing of this, this child that's coming that's going to crush the head of the serpent, right? That's, that's the seed of the promise, and that's, we've traced that line, and we've also traced the line of Cain, right? The seed of the serpent, the murderers, right? The killers, the deceivers, the liars, right? We've, we've traced both of those lines, and the reality is, is at this point in Genesis, the line of the serpent has become so prolific and so dominant over the earth that it threatens the very kind of fabric of creation. The text makes a point of calling them violent and corrupt. They have destroyed creation both in their violence and their corruption. They are essentially attacking the goodness of creation. They are against life, right? Saw that very clearly in Cain, right? They're against life for violence, for death, against the beauty of creation. They're, they're totally corrupting it. And not only are they corrupting it, and we talked about like the common grace that was afforded to them. They're allowed to kind of like hang out and, because God is being patient with them, hoping that they would, you know, repent and turn. But, but not only that, um, they're threatening the line of the promise, right? The line of the woman. The only one left is Noah. And there's this violent and corrupt generation and they are, they are so prolific that, that, that Noah's the only one left, and this one commentator makes a point. He says, you know, essentially once the line of the serpent eliminated a common place for the line of the promise, right? Once common place was removed, common grace was removed. Because God will not allow the promise to be destroyed in the same way that he will not allow his creation to be destroyed. Now, there's a point that I want to make here because oftentimes people come to this narrative and, and they see a wrathful and vengeful God who's pouring out his wrath on creation. And that's in here. That's in here. As a response to sin, God is wrathful, okay? But primarily, what I want you to see first is that humanity is the one destroying creation originally in this text. And there's a very real sense in that the dynamic that's going on here is, is kind of spoken of in, in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 has one of the scariest verses in all the Bible. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. So you have a humanity that is totally bent on corruption, totally bent on destruction, and God gives them over to the desires of their heart. Destruction is what you want. You want a world apart from me, apart from my promises, apart from trusting in me, apart from dependence upon me. 
This is what it looks like. Okay? God is un, un, unleashing, essentially, the very thing that they have, by their actions, been asking for. He's hurrying along their destructive tendencies. But rather than seeing a wrathful God, I hope you can see a gracious and loving God because he doesn't just pour out his wrath, he also preserves a remnant. And the primary remnant that is spoken of in this passage is primarily one person, right? He's dominant through the text. That's Noah. Noah is the primary remnant. There's a secondary remnant, his family and all of the animals, right? right? They're all preserved by God. And, and there's some things that I want you to see real clearly. I, I said at the beginning, I, I didn't want you to, you know, I didn't want to do this dramatic thing where you saw me in the text, where I pretended to be Noah. I wanted you to see Christ. So I want to be very clear. There are lots of different ways in which in this passage, Noah prefigures Christ. You know, Genesis is such an amazing book because it's like a seed of the story of redemption that God is going to work out throughout all of Scripture. Like, all of the elements are there. It just hasn't fully grown. And, and if you look at Genesis, you can see in kind of like seed form all of the things that God is going to do in Christ Jesus. And that's the case absolutely in Noah. Noah prefigures Christ in several very important ways. I want to highlight four of them this morning. Four ways that Noah prefigures Christ. There's a sense in which Noah uh, is like Christ. He is not Christ, right? He is in Christ, and he reflects Christ. Um, and as he reflects Christ, he's pointing to Christ. Now, that was a very confusing thing to say. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is essentially, because he's a child of the promise, he's in the line of the woman, the seed of the woman. He's a child of the promise. He's in Christ. He believes the promise, just like you and I believe. And so as a result, he's in Christ. His, his being preserved is directly linked to his link to Christ. And insofar as that's true, he also reflects Christ in the same way that you and I reflect Christ. We who are in him also reflect to a world. We're not Jesus, but we're like Jesus. Noah is the same way. I want to, so four ways that I want to point out. First of all, the relationship. Notice the language and the very special relationship that Noah has with God. It, it mentions in chapter 6, verse 9, that's a little bit before our section, that Noah walked with God. That is a phrase that has been reserved for only one other person in Genesis, and that's Enoch. And one thing that you've got to remember is like with Enoch, the, the Jewish people in the intertestamental period, they were obsessed with Enoch because it says that he walked with God and then he was no more. And they wanted to know what happened to him. <laughs> like if he was no more... And so, you know, in the intertestamental period, there were all these books like 1st, 2nd, 3rd Enoch, right, that were kind of meant to describe kind of like what happened to Enoch. And they were all kind of these fantastic journeys that he went on and the wonders that he saw in heaven and all these things because they, they saw him as having this very special relationship with God. He must have seen some incredible things. And so in these books, they imagined what those things would be and they described them. Those books are not in your Bible, <laughs> right? Because we don't understand them to have been inspired. And, and, but they're, they're very important in, in that they highlight the uh, very special relationship that the Jews saw that Enoch had. And therefore, the very special relationship that they saw Noah had. Right? And that gets back to him being in Christ. He is the inheritor of the promise, 
right, in the line of the seed of the woman. He walks with God. Brothers and sisters, you walk with God. We walk with God because we are the inheritors of the promise just like Noah, right? But the ultimate inheritor of the promise, the ultimate fulfiller of the promise, was the offspring of Noah, ultimately Jesus Christ. So he prefigured him even as he was in him. You see? The relationship. Secondly, he's righteous and blameless. 6.9, righteous and blameless. Uh, 7 talks about it too. God says to him, I've seen that you're righteous, right? Um, so he's righteous. Now we're going to see as we read on in Genesis, Noah wanting perfect. For those of you who have been around Christendom for a little while, maybe you've read Genesis, you know that there's something coming in the next chapter where you kind of go, hmm, maybe he's not so perfect. <laughs> That's coming. That'll be next week, right? He's not perfect, but he is righteous and blameless. So how does that work? Um, well, I mean, by comparison to the rest of the world that was violent and corrupt and totally you know, debasing God's creation, uh, he's righteous and blameless in that generation by comparison. Also, just like you, do you know that you are righteous and blameless? Why? Because you're in Christ. And insofar as you're in Christ, you also, by your righteousness and blameless, when you do good works, you reflect Christ. That was true of Noah too, right? So he's, he's just like us, but he's prefiguring Christ. He's pointing to Christ in his righteousness and blamelessness because, of course, who is the ultimate righteous and blameless one? Jesus, Sunday school answer, right? So he points to him in his special relationship, Jesus had a very special relationship with the Father, ultimately walked with God in a way that we will never walk with God. He's as part of the Trinity. He was righteous and blameless in a way that we will never be righteous and blameless, but we are righteous and blameless in that way because he's applied his righteousness and blamelessness to us, right? Do you see? I'm going round and round, but I hope you get it. Second, thirdly, he's ridiculously trusting. Noah is ridiculously trusting. God says, hey, the world's violent and corrupt. Build a box because <laughs> rain's coming. Okay. <laughs> okay. If I were doing the monologue, that's what it would be about, right? God said to build a box. What a weird thing. That's such a strange request. But I guess I'll do it. <laughs> Jesus was told to become a person walk in life, suffer and die on the cross. What a ridiculous request. And yet he followed his will, his father's will perfectly. He was ridiculously trusting of his father. Like he didn't want to go to the cross. That's not terrible. If, 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 if possible, take this cup, he said. But not, your will, not my will, but yours be done. Trusted his father. And his father honored that trust. And, and, and Christ and Noah both rested in the promises of God. Did you notice in the story that, that Noah gets into the ark and who shuts the door? God. God shuts the door to protect Noah from the elements. There's a sense in which God is very active in, in honoring the trust that Noah puts in him to protect him. Noah rests in the promises of God just as Jesus rested in the promises of his father. And also, incidentally, just as we do and believers, and we could do that circle again, but I won't. You get it. Finally, last way in which Noah prefigures Christ is he's the savior of others. He's the savior of others. Note that his family is saved through him. 
and all of the animals are saved through him. If there's a way that's easy to see yourself in this story, the easiest way to see yourself in this story is through Noah's family because we are saved through our great brother Christ, right? It's not through our great faith that we are saved, although our faith is a part of that. It's ultimately his work and his faith and his relationship. It's through all of that that we are saved. We get in to salvation through Christ. We are in him just as Noah and his family and the animals were in the ark. You see? Right? All of them are put together because of the relationship, right? And we're saved through our relationship with Christ. So do you see the four ways that Noah prefigures Christ, right? And in some ways us. Here's my application, why I I spent the time doing that. First of all, I think when you're reading the Old Testament, you have to see the ways in which all of these narratives prefigure Christ because all of them are meant to be this beautiful, poetic way in which God is reflecting the character of Christ to you as a way of encouraging you and growing you in your faith. So often people read the Old Testament and think, well, these are just nice moral stories that, you know, they're kind of like leading up to the real story. Or, you know, there are different ways that God tried to save people that didn't work out before God did the real thing. No, all of them are part of the grand plan of salvation that Christ is ultimately going to fulfill, right? And God was pointing to that all along. There was no trial and error on God's part. There was just a very long and deliberate and slow and direct revelation about the truth about Christ so that people can put their faith in him and be saved, okay? But also, there's a sense in which Noah, as he reflected Christ, there's a challenge to us that we ought to also reflect Christ in how we live our lives. Halloween was recent right? Speaking of dressing up as characters, I was not Noah for Halloween. Um, I should have been, then I would have had a costume and I could have done it. Um, Didn't do that. Um, We like Halloween. Our kids dressed up as scary things. We had vampires and skeletons, a couple witches, an ice witch named Elsa, (laughs) lots of scary things. Uh, And we went door to door and trick-or-treating and we went to uh, one neighbor's house and and she called out and said, hey, what what are you? And the kids all said what they were. And, um, and then she, she looked at me and she said, what are you? I, I said, well, you know, they're all scary things and I'm the scariest thing ever. She said, oh yeah, what's that? I said, I'm an evangelical pastor. <laughs> You're all laughing. And I'm aware, by the way, that the, the, the term evangelical is going through a transformation. Okay, I, I'm aware of that. But, but you know, What she said back to me was really striking. She said, no, you're not. You know why? Because I know this neighbor, and she's kind of like, you're normal. That was real convicting. You know why? Because if we reflect Christ, we shouldn't be normal. We shouldn't be normal. If we are are dressing up as him, if we're reflecting him to a watching world, we should be the, the, the most crazy, weirdest thing that that people have ever seen. And in fact, we should be a little scary. Noah and his testimony was a little scary to the world around him. He's building this box, right? And this impending flood. Jesus picks up to this in in Matthew's gospel. He says, just as like Noah and the, the flood came suddenly in the days of Noah, so the Son of Man and his return. You know, it's striking to me 
the way that the, our culture views us as weird. I was talking with a friend who's a campus minister at Duke, and, and he said, you know, the thing that people react so strongly to is our sexual ethics right now. Like, we're viewed as really weird because of our sexual ethics, which, you know, I mean, by comparison to the world, I guess that is pretty weird. But he, he said, you know, I'm, I'm one conversation away from being written up in the, in, the, in the student newspaper and being kicked off campus because of my sexual ethic as a pastor. You know what's striking to me about that and what was striking to him? He says, I believe in a coming judgment where God is going to judge all men according to their sins and those who aren't in Christ are going to receive his wrath. But everybody's like, that's fine. <laughs> that's cute and mythological. We're not really going to get upset about that. We're used to that, right? It's your sexual ethic that's really bothering us. Like, like, we ought to be going to people and telling them just how scary we are. It's a little scarier than they think. Because we're weird. And the coming judgment is scary. But you know, Noah isn't a story, as I said, of God's judgment. It's a story of his grace. And even as we are scary to the world, we ought to be representing the hope that is presented for us here, the beauty of the remnant, the salvation that is offered in Christ is the story. And as we dress up as Christ, as we represent that to the world, even as they are scared, the ultimate thing shouldn't be a fear of the coming judgment. It ought to be an amazement at the beauty of who Christ is and the salvation that is offered to us in the gospel. It's the most beautiful Halloween costume ever, even as it's scary. But we've got to stop pretending we're normal. We are weird. Um, I want to kind of move into talking about the reckoning, the second point, right? This is the scary part. We need to talk about the scary part to get to the beautiful part. Um, and uh, to talk about the reckoning, I want to just, you know, you get to Noah and everybody always has the questions, you know? There's a lot of questions. I taught Bible in ancient world at a Christian school. Um, so, I, you know, we looked at the Bible as a historical, um, historically accurate source. I believe it is historically accurate. Um, <laughs> I hope that goes without saying. Uh, and, and, you know, you get to stories like this, and people always want to ask the historically accurate questions. And here's what I want to do this morning. You remember the show Cheers? You remember Cheers, some of you? Those of you who are older, those of you who are younger than me are like, no, what is that? Um, I see some heads shaking. No, cheers. That's way back. Okay, so there was this show called Cheers. It was set in a bar. There were a cast of characters that were regulars in the bar, and they used to kind of like talk, and it was all very funny. Okay? There was one character named Cliff. He was a mailman. He kind of knew everything, right? He was a know-it-all. He would always show up at the bar and kind of know everything. Well, one episode, Cliff gets put on Jeopardy. It's my favorite episode. He gets put on Jeopardy, and he crushes it. First two rounds, he has like $22,000. I think the other two contestants have like negative money and like $100 or something like that, right? And he gets to final Jeopardy and his buddies are out in the audience and, and Norm is going, Norm's talking to Woody. He goes, I just feel for him because he's going to blow it. And, and Woody's like, how's he going to blow it? Anyway, <laughs> he blows it. Um, he gets to final Jeopardy. All he has to do is not bet all of the money, right? Well, he bets all of the money. And, and the answer is, 
Archibald Leach, Bernard Schwartz, and Lucille Lesore, right? And you know how Jeopardy works? You don't give the answer, you give the question, right? He doesn't know the right question. The right question that the, uh, the authors of the, the game were looking for was, what are the real names of Cary Grant, Tony Curtis, and Joan Crawford? But what Cliff says, because he doesn't know the answer, is, what are the names of three people who've never been in my kitchen? Technically, he's right, right? And he insists at the end of the episode, he's like arguing with Alec Trebek. He's like, I, that is correct. This is true. They've never been in my kitchen. Call him and ask them, <laughs> right? Um, I think sometimes we come to Genesis with the wrong questions, right? We kind of want to ask the questions that we're comfortable with because we kind of want to think about things the way we want to think about things. This text wants you to think about things a little differently. So what I want to do is rather than diving into all the questions that we want to ask of the text as modern readers, there's lots of sermons about that, by the way. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about it, and I'm not trying to dodge them. I think they are good questions. We can talk about how all these people were not in your kitchen. Um, but, But what I want to focus on is the questions that the text wants us to ask. So first of all, when we're thinking about this reckoning, think about the flood. What we want to ask is, where was it? Was it a local flood, a global flood? How big was it? What are the evidences of it? Like, where can we find like, some sort of like, uh, archaeological or geological record of the flood? Like, these are the questions that we want to ask, right? Like, was this flood in our kitchen? <laughs> Right? Like, those are the questions we want to... But what the text wants us to ask is not where or when was the flood, but what is the flood, okay? What is the flood? And it's, and it's from a literary standpoint, the flood is so much more than just a flood and a bunch of water. And I, I really want you to see this, that uh, like, what is being communicated here is so much more terrible than a bunch of rain all over the earth or in a local geographic position, whatever. It's so much more terrible than that. The language here, first of all, you need to understand in ancient Near Eastern culture and specifically in Hebrew culture, water represented chaos, absolute chaos. You see that very clearly at the very beginning of Genesis. The Spirit of God hovers over what? The waters. Before God brings order to creation, there's just water, chaos, right? And what I want you to see is that the flood essentially walks back the steps of creation. God is undoing creation, literarily, in this text, okay? Notice that, like, the flood ends with God sending a wind over the waters. Well, guess what? That's how creation begins, with God, the spirit. Spirit and wind are the same word in in Hebrew, ruach, right? The spirit hovering over the waters. That's how creation begins. That's how the flood ends. Do you see? At various different points, right, in creation, God separates. Remember that? It's kind of weird language for us modern readers. He separates the waters in the heavens from the waters on the earth, right? Well, in the flood, he brings them back together. He separates the waters to produce dry land in creation. But in the flood... He brings the waters up over the highest mountains so that all the water covers everything. Okay, what is being described from a literary standpoint is God basically saying, you want a world without me? 
I will remove my protective presence and allow everything to descend back into chaos and violence and destruction, just like you were acting like you wanted. Do you see? It's much more terrible. This is a terrible picture of God's wrath. And that is a picture of how he deals with sin that rebels against him and says, I want nothing to do with you, God. He says, fine. Here's a world without me. Okay? That's the right question. (laughs) Second thing, we love to ask this question. Like, where's the ark? In my Bible and ancient world class, ninth grade, Mr. Sutton, what archaeological evidence do we have of the ark and where is it? Can we find it today? There's lots of people that think they found it. There's all kinds of stuff. We could talk about this for hours. There are sermons about it. We're not going to ask that question today. (laughs) Instead of where is the ark or where can I find it or what historical evidence do we have of it, here's the question that I want to ask. What is the ark? What is the flood and what is the ark? There is a couple of times in Scripture where God gives exact dimensions to build something. One's the temple, one's the ark. There's a sense in which the temple and the ark are linked there's a sense in which Noah being kind of put into this ark with all these animals is with God in the same way that the temple represented the dwelling place of God with man. So when Noah goes into the ark and is protected, he's surrounded by God. He's being protected. He's with God. Okay? But here's something else that I think is very important. Um, the Egyptian root for the word coffin is very similar to the Hebrew word for ark. Ark doesn't mean boat. It just means chest. And if you think about it, the other place where an ark shows up in, um, in the Pentateuch, in addition to in the temple, right? Uh, there's this ark, there's the one in the temple, and then there's one more. That's the one that no, uh, sorry, Moses is thrown into as he's put into the water meant to be killed by the Nile. Both Augustine and John Calvin referred to the ark, this ark, Noah's ark, as a coffin. There's a sense in which Noah was building a coffin with a window, and he was getting into it with a bunch of animals. I think we miss that. I think we think of it as like he's seeing this as like God's provision of safety, but like why would a box, right? There's there's nothing boat-like about the description of this. Why would a box with a bunch of animals, some of them deadly, (laughs) feel like life? It's absolutely a picture of death. And here's, here's my application of these two things. God has promised to bring judgment for sin. And he has promised deliverance for his people. He doesn't promise that he will not have them enter into suffering and death, but he does promise that he will bring them through it. And the application for us this morning is that just as Noah had the ark, Christ had the cross. And Christ invites us into his ark by saying, pick up your cross and follow me. We as believers so often, I think, are so consumed with our own safety and well-being. But in reality, what we should be doing is we should be following after Christ. We should be entering into the ark. And that is a walk into death. That's the application for us. Because if we pick up our cross and follow Christ, right, we are entering into death. Now, here's the promise. Christ will bring us through that. 
into new life. But it's not something that um, we avoid in to- uh, totally. I want to I just, a couple of uh, biblical passages to, uh, to grapple with so you can kind of see where I'm going with this, so you can understand in the New Testament where this comes from. You know, I mentioned that in Matthew 24, Jesus says his return will be like the flood, sudden and catastrophic for those who aren't in him, right? So how do you get in him? Well, he says that in other places in the gospel, specifically, specifically, not pacifically. Sorry, that was a water pun. Unintentional. Mark, Mark chapter 8, for example, pick up your cross and follow me. That's how you become in me. You walk with me in, in my dying and my suffering and also in my rising, right? That's what it means to be in him. We become one with him, union with Christ. There's a lot that could be said about that, but it's not just like I believe in Jesus and ask him into my heart. It's because I become one with him through faith and walk with him, right? And, and, you know, this is so pictured for us in baptism. I wish we were having an infant baptism today because, you know, we love to kind of like buck all the cutesy trends that are in churches, you know, like Jeff always picks like the hardest sermons to preach on Mother's Day, <laughs> right? And, you know, like some terrible sermon about God's judgment. And he's like, happy Mother's Day, <laughs> right? <laughs> I wish there was a family baptizing a baby today because like the New Testament doesn't just talk about baptism as this washing, right? It also talks about baptism as a dying and rising, Right? Consider Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, here's important. Listen to this verse. 1 Peter 3 actually ties that dying and rising directly with Noah. Listen to 3.20, 1 Peter. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? Our baptism is meant to like figure our death. When we bring our babies and we say, here, baptize them, we're kind of like dipping them into death and prefiguring their rising in Christ. <laughs> Happy baptism. <laughs> right? And here's the application. Have you entered the coffin with the window? Are you picking up your cross and following Christ? Because there is a destruction happening all around us. The world is absolutely terrible. It's a violent and corrupt world, right? And the only way to save yourself is to become in Christ, to do the exact opposite of what would be natural to do. Rather than trying to preserve yourself, you ought to try to sacrifice yourself in Christ with him. You see? We aren't removed from trial and suffering, but we are preserved through it. And that brings me to my last point, the reboot. The reboot. Um, We talked a lot about kind of like poetic, I've talked a lot about the kind of poetic and literary structure of this passage. Kind of one of the first things that they teach you in seminary when you're studying the Old Testament is uh, like the Hebrew tendency to write poems in chiasms. Okay, some of you are shaking your head because you've been around our church and we talk about it a lot when we talk about the Old Testament. So for those of you who aren't familiar, a chiasm is uh, it's kind of like a pyramid structure that begins and ends exactly the same way and kind of like has mirrors that lead to a central point on either side of the story. So for example, in this narrative, 
There's a period of seven days of waiting, followed by a period of seven days of waiting, followed by a period of 40 days and 40 nights, followed by a period of 150 days, followed by another period of 150 days, followed by another 40 period day, and then seven period day, seven, seven day period, and then a seven day period. Do you see the chiasm, right? The beginning and the end are the same, it all kind of comes together in the middle. Well, this whole story forms a chiasm, and you know what the center point is? The center point is this verse in chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. That is such a, this is the big point from this sermon that I want you to get. Like, I, I think it's so weird, that language, right? God remembered Noah. It's almost like, you know, God turned on the water and then he was like off kind of like running the universe and he's like, oh, I forgot the water. But now I've remembered. I've remembered Noah. I'm going to go back and I'm going to save him. Um, That's not what this means. That's how we read it, but that's not what this means. When God remembers people and he remembers that, like that happens, for example, in Exodus when his people are enslaved, it says that the Lord remembered his people and his promise. it's, it's It's a way of saying he loves them. He cares for them. They matter. It's become common in our modern language to say um, that I see you. Some friends of mine, I was trying to really love them well this last week. And um, in a way to make me feel appreciated, they say, James, we, you know, you did all this, you did this, you did this. We see you. That's essentially what's happening here. God sees Noah. Now, here's the thing. We who are children of the promise... It's easy for us as we are tossed to and fro about in this world that is totally falling apart, right? To feel unseen by God. But Sunday is a great time to come back together and to remember that God remembers us. God remembers you. God cares. God loves you. You may feel forgotten You may feel like everything is gone totally sideways and that God is not aware, but he remembers. And and what does he do for those he remembers? (laughs) Essentially, the next section of this passage from 8.1 until 8.20 and really beyond is God undoing his undoing of creation. The literary structure, it, it follows almost exactly Genesis 1. It leaves out a couple of days, the creation of the sun, moon, and stars, and, and, and the heavens. But everything else is recreated intentionally as it walks through this passage, right? I already said it begins with the wind on the waters, right? Um, God sends the wind to divide the waters. Again, they're redivided, the heavens and the, the waters below, right? To the early readers, this would have reminded them of what? Coming out of Egypt, God dividing waters, not this way, but this way right? The Red Sea. It's a, it's a picture of salvation. God bringing order to the chaos, separating it out, and then, then bringing about like dry land. That's the next step. The mountaintops kind of appear, right? Then, then there's this whole section that's, that's meant to represent day five of creation where he sends out the birds. Remember the birds and the fish were next, <laughs> right? And they're flying around. You have the, the raven and the dove. And here's what I want to say about the dove. We could preach a whole sermon about this, but here's the thing. The dove comes back with what? 
Olive branch, olive leaf, right? What's an olive branch represent? Peace. Peace. We've always kind of like, like that's, that's something like if you're having a fight with somebody and you want to end it, you bring them an olive branch, and they know what that means, right? Well, we've kind of undergone, I've gone, undergone a kind of a, a resurgence of understanding what peace is. Peace is more than just the end of a war. It's, it's, a, it's, it's the representation of wholeness. Shalom, that's the concept, right? Shalom. Everything has been made whole. That's the picture. The, the, the dove comes back with an olive branch. It's like, guess what? Creation has been made whole again. It's safe. When Jesus gets baptized, the dove descends on him, pointing to the reality that he is the shalom, the wholeness, the beginning of everything being made whole. It goes on 8, 17 through 19, uh, and 8, 16 through 18. Uh, animals and man appear, and then it ends uh, with this blessing mandate and this ginormous worship service, uh, which again, uh, you know, it's the same mandate that Adam and Eve were given, conquer and subdue the earth, right? This is very much the undoing of God undoing creation. It's him recreating, rebooting creation. And it's meant to point to something more than just a reboot. Um, if we read on, and we will next week, you're going to see this very clearly. The problem isn't solved by a reboot, is it? Noah gets off and his imperfections and the imperfections of his line become very apparent very quickly again, right? It wasn't enough to reboot creation. Very clearly illustrating that part of the problem isn't just out there, it's also in here. I think oftentimes we think that that's it, right? Like if I just got rid of all of you and all of, you know, pollution and was living in a really nice, like, earth, just me and my family, <laughs> we'd be fine. No, that's, that's not going to work. Why? Because I'm part of the problem. My family's part of the problem. Noah and his family were part of the problem. It's like um, cancer treatment, right? What do they do? They go in and they try and get all of the cancer out. But it's not the cure. Well, here's the thing. The reboot of Noah points to a greater recreation where God is going to remake everything. He's going to make everything new, including you and I, including the heavens, right? All of it is going to be recreated, right? That's, that's what the story of Noah points to. And, and, and ultimately, we see that in the New Testament so clearly. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Aren't you ready for that? Are you tired of the way in which the violence and corruption of your own heart and soul impact others and yourself on a daily basis? Wouldn't it be nice if you could go through a process where God totally and completely recreates you to the point where you are totally unrecognizable in many ways, totally made new? Because that's what he's doing. That's what he did in Christ Jesus, who is the first fruits. And now he's doing it with us, but not just us. Romans 8, 19 and following. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning 
together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for, ado- for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, we worship a God who loves us so much, He remembers us so much, that He's going to go so far as to recreate all of us perfectly and recreate this world perfectly recreate the heavens perfectly for us. You are not just seen. You are loved. So loved. And he sent his son to die and rise to be the beginning, the the first fruits of that glorious recreation that is happening. It is happening in all of us. You know... I've been very intentional of not addressing practical questions about the historicity of this passage. I'm sure you noticed, right? Some of you may be kind of frustrated with that, like I wanted you to talk about this, but all you're talking about is the literary structure and how this is a poetic kind of story. Um, and, And maybe some of you are feeling like, well, if this is just poetry, is it really true? Isn't it just more appropriate to treat poetry like epic poetry of like the Greeks of old, it's like mythology. You know, I think it can kind of seem like Noah's story is mythological. Um, But I want you to grapple with the fact that it should. It should seem mythological. Because here's the deal. Your story is poetic and mythological, or seems mythological. (laughs) It's not mythological. It seems mythological. Because we believe in a God who raises people from the dead, and we believe that he is recreating each of us internally and weaving our story into the grand story of our Savior who came, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, and rose, and now sits in heaven. That's epic poetry. And you're being woven into that in the same way that Noah did, and I believe that God writes poetry on our lives. And so if Noah's story seems poetic, and that makes it seem mythological, good. Because the stuff that we believe is amazing and glorious and incredible to the world. And as we live it out, we ought to look like funky mythological creatures. Best Halloween Halloween costume ever. Walking around, revealing the beauty of the salvation of our God. Because he's doing that with each of us. Each of us is being remade. I guess in a way we're all kind of doing dramatic monologues, right? (laughs) So maybe it would have been appropriate for me to do that. But here's what I would ask. Here's my prayer for us. May Christ shine clearly through our stories, our mythological almost stories of redemption, so that a watching world might see and believe in the glorious reality of who our Savior is. I pray that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.